Today our scripture text comes from Luke chapter 3 beginning in verse 7 and here we see that the ministry of salvation that the Lord Jesus will be bringing to the world has already been set in motion by this very special man, John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the beginning voice of that ministry, heralding that soon coming Messiah, telling everyone that just as it had been prophesied 700 years earlier by the prophet Isaiah, where he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And John was doing exactly that, declaring that the kingdom of God had come to the earth and proclaiming to those crowds of people that the Holy Spirit was drawing out to hear him that a baptism of repentance was necessary for the forgiveness of their sins. A baptism of repentance was necessary for the forgiveness of their sins. And John's message was not a gentle one. It was not a clever one, as so much of the preaching is in this generation. John spoke strong and convicting words from God, telling the people that they must repent, else they would be lost eternally. And not only must they repent of their sins, their repentance must be proven out and proven true by their behaviors here calling each of them to invest themselves in bearing what he calls fruits of righteousness. Listen to these words, beginning in verse 7. Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, this is John the Baptist, then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit worthy of repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, But we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the people asked him, saying, Well, what then shall we do? He answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. The tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. Folks, repentance is defined in the Bible dictionary as being, first of all, a sense of deep regret. This is a conviction of the Holy Spirit. It's defined as a sense of deep regret. Secondly, a changing of the mind. And then thirdly, turning from sin to God. Now with that definition as our guide and with these words that we just read from John the Baptist fresh in our minds, we know then that God is setting before us a very clear understanding that simply feeling regret 
for the wrong things that we do is not enough. How often have you heard someone stand in a press interview where they say, well, I've made mistakes. That's not it, folks. That's not it. Here God is setting before us and those people then a very clear understanding that simply feeling regret for the wrong things that we do is not enough. It's not enough to admit that you made a mistake. There is so much, much more that we should be doing about those sinful behaviors and habits that our sinful nature has within it. And we know that it is God's Holy Spirit, as I said a moment ago, that brings these stinging pangs of guilt and regret to us. That's one of those very special ministries of the Holy Spirit. John told us in John chapter 16, when He, the Holy Spirit, this is Jesus talking, when He, the Holy Spirit, comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That conviction with stinging pangs of guilt and regret. The Holy Spirit and His blessed ministry is all a part of God's special covenant of grace by which He then brings changes within our souls, your and my soul, to transform us into the image of the Lord Jesus. But again, the guilt and the regret that we experience, they are not enough just making us feel badly. They're intended for the very specific purpose of guiding us on to the next steps. Steps that speak a loud and clear voice that we truly do want to change and to be different than what we were before. But unfortunately, for the most of us, changes like that seem always to be the most difficult barrier for us to get past. Yes, we do want to rid ourselves of guilt and shame for our sins. And we want all those joys and the goodness of the salvation that Jesus gives to us. But when faced with the necessity of turning away from some of the sins that have captivated us for so long, even that we have enjoyed, we might not want to admit that, but sins that we've enjoyed, when we're faced with having to turn away from those, that's where we often falter. God gives us a very clear example of that kind of captivity in the account of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus one day and he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then when Jesus told him to go and to sell all that he had, give the money to the poor, and then come and follow him immediately, the young man was faced with a dilemma. A dilemma. It seems that during most of his lifetime, this young man had accumulated great wealth and he had attained a high social position. And he had become very attached to all of that. And Jesus knew the young man's heart, just like he knows your and my heart right now. Jesus knew this young man's heart and he knew the man's wealth was a stumbling block to him. And that before any real change could take place in that man's life, that he would need to give up his desires for all of his worldly possessions. And so the young man was faced with a dilemma. Yes, he wanted the salvation, 
but he also wanted his wealth and his social position. A question, were his wealth and social position in themselves sinful? Not at all. Not at all. But based on the response that we observe here from this young man, it was his love for it all, his desire for it all, his bondage even to it that was sinful. And when Jesus told him to go and sell all that he had and to give his money to the poor and then come and follow him, the young man just could not do it. He couldn't do it, so sadly he turned then and walked away from Jesus. Folks, I have no doubt that that young man was very sincere in his desires to be righteous and to follow Jesus. I've known many people with a deep desire to do that. But when with this young man he was confronted with the knowledge that following Jesus would cost him the things that he valued and that he enjoyed most, he weighed his options and he decided in favor of his wealth. And yes, he was very sad as he walked away. But folks, as we're told in 1 Corinthians, worldly sorrow counts for very little. Worldly sorrow such as that counts for very little. And the sorrow that this young man felt that day would be only the beginning of his sadness. If that young man did not at some point in the future turn back and follow Jesus, then his sadness would become eternal. Eternal. But that's the nature of the choices that Jesus offers to us. We can continue to love and to keep our sin. And listen, we can even actually hate our sin. But if we still choose to keep it, the decision is all the same. We have our sin, but we do not have Jesus. We can have our sin, but we do not have Jesus. Thankfully, for those of us who give our hearts to Jesus, God will at some point put a stumbling block within our sin that eventually makes it difficult for us to live with. While yes, our sin is most often enjoyable for a season, and we can make excuses for it. We can think of all sorts of good reasons why we ought to keep it. There will always come a time, thankfully, when the true nature of a sin will catch up to a person and it will demand its consequences. And we'll have to deal with it. We'll have to deal with it. In our modern day culture, high positions and wealth such as this young man had, they often carry with them demands that are strong upon our souls. Sometimes those demands lure husbands and wives away from their families. Separation, divorce, Fatherless children become the recompense and then those real worthwhile treasures of our lives are then lost forever. Whatever the sinful entanglements of our lives, and they can be many in this modern day, money, sex, pornography, drugs, and these days prescription drugs, alcohol, anger, 
I had problems with my anger, especially in my younger years. It's very difficult on me. But thankfully, the Lord has helped me with that. Bitterness. People choose to keep bitterness about old offenses. Do you have bitterness? Refusal to forgive another person. That can plague a person through all the many things they do each day. But whatever the sin may be, if we choose to hold on to it, it will surely exact its penalty from us. And you can be sure of that because God's going to make sure of it. As difficult as it will be for us, God's simple remedy for our dilemma is repentance. A changing of our mind and our heart and a turning from that sin to God. But folks, there also, we have to be careful. This can be a time, this time of turning from our sin can be a time of great confusion for us. In our efforts to turn away from our sin, we can get so consumed by that struggle that we neglect the part about turning our hearts to God. And we find ourselves turning away from one sin only to get caught up in another one. Recall those words from the Lord Jesus when He cautioned us in Matthew 12 about just such circumstance. There He said in Matthew 12, verse 43, When an unclean spirit comes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and he takes with him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Folks, merely turning away from sin is not enough. Yes, we may be clean for a season. But unless we replace that empty vacuum left from that sin, then surely, surely it or some other sin like it will come right back in seven times worse. In our modern day language, they call that recidivism. And it is so very common. Falling back over and over and over again. The turning that is such an integral part of repentance is a turning away from sin to Christ. It's as simple as that. Turning away from sin to Christ. And unless you and I are willing to do that, then we will surely only continue to fall back into sin over and over again. Each time in a worse condition. And remember that sin is not just some bad thing that we accidentally stumble over. Folks, God defines sin very differently. Sin is a clever and unrelenting predator who continually stalks us and desires to control us. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? That sin is a predator that stalks us and desires to control us. You should believe that because God said that. Just as Cain was getting ready to go out to murder his brother, God stopped him and said, Cain, Cain's sin is crouching at your door. 
It desires to have you, to control you. But you must master it. That's the choice that stands before each of us every moment. Sin entangles us, and it wants to control us. It's like that thief in John chapter 10. Its very nature is to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But the message from these scriptures today is that we must master it. We must make the choice. You and I must make the choice to repent and to turn, even flee from sin, and to turn to Christ and to the path that He has laid out for us to follow. The words that John the Baptist spoke to the people on that particular occasion were words intended to cause the people to take several steps in their repentance. First, to examine their own hearts and to see how their conduct and their behavior was an affront to the holiness of God. Have you ever done that? Have you ever stopped and examined your own heart and asked yourself, does my behavior, do my thoughts violate the holiness of God? Secondly, John was telling them to turn their hearts away from their sins to Christ. To Christ. And then he gave them a third thing to do. To walk in ways that were completely different from the ways they had been walking. To walk in ways of purity and righteousness. Now Jesus the Messiah would be coming to these same people very shortly, within days. And he would be speaking words of salvation. And John's message to them was a message of preparation. A kind of plowshare upturning and preparing their hearts to receive the salvation that Jesus would offer to them. John's words were not the simple and clever thoughts of a man. Please understand that. These words that we read here, they are not the simple or clever thoughts of a man. They are instead words with a special power within them. Words that can penetrate a lifetime of hardened habits and behaviors. Recall this: these words that... I gave to us in an earlier message from Hebrews chapter 4. God says His words, they're living and powerful and active. And they're sharper than any double-edged sword. They're able to pierce between bone and marrow, soul and spirit. And those words are able to discern the thoughts and the intents of our minds. God's words were John's special powerful instrument as he called out to the men and women to repent and to turn from their sin. And notice here also, folks, that John was not just sent to minister to a certain group of people. He ministered to them all, Jews and Gentiles. You'll notice in these words, there's wealthy and there's poor and there's tax collectors and there's soldiers proving out the scriptures that says that God calls all men to himself. He does not desire that any should perish. And as he warned these Jews, their bloodline, their bloodline of being Jews did not earn them any special place within the salvation of God. No, bloodlines, our bloodlines, our heritage, or as with many of us, our family attendance at church every Sunday, it does not earn us any special 
favors from God. We don't earn God's favors. While, yes, faithful church attendance is right and it's an excellent thing to do, it cannot earn our salvation or favors with God. We do not earn His favors. Those are gifts. Only the blood of Christ can actually bring salvation and all of these good and perfect gifts of salvation and righteousness to our souls. Notice also here, it's so very clear that John did not try to measure his words carefully as we are told to do in this generation. Today we're told that hellfire and brimstone messages are too harsh and that such messages will only alienate people and drive them away. We're told to be tolerant of all people, tolerant of their behaviors, so that we might then cleverly draw them in and convince them then that they ought to follow Jesus. We're told to preach messages of love and consolation, else we might injure their tender souls. Seldom in today's religious culture are harsh words like the ones spoken here by John allowed to be preached. Words telling the people to repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's a threat. But John was obviously not constrained by the foolishness that controls our generation. He immediately, without concern for their feelings, he confronted these people with their sin and he, he called out to them, brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Folks, John the Baptist was given over to the power and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit knew that these people were really desirous of being saved, really desirous of following the Lord Jesus. But they were still held so captive by their sin. And the Holy Spirit knew that it would take a strong message of conviction to shake them out of their self-righteousness. John called out to the people to repent and to turn from their sinful ways. And as happens when the Holy Spirit is at work in men's heart, they responded. And we read here how they responded. They in essence said to him, we do repent. But what should we do now? And John told them that it's not enough just to be sorry for your sins. But you must also begin to show forth changes that have taken place within your souls by bearing fruits, fruits of repentance. You recall also that later on Jesus would say to his disciples in John chapter 15, he said, Abide in me, and I in you. And as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And then here's the key. He said, I am the vine, and you're the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that will bear much fruit. And that was what John was calling out to them to begin to do. This was this upturning of the soil within their souls to receive these words of Jesus. Here John told them to exchange those sinful habits of theirs and those sinful behaviors for fruits of righteousness, to show forth fruits worthy of repentance by sharing food and clothing with those in need. The tax collectors should collect only the proper amounts and the soldiers should stop intimidating the people and be content with their own pay. And folks, listen, it is the same for you and me. Each of us, each of us has sins much like the sins of these people in John's day. Yes, our sins 
are in a different setting, but they are still sins, and they need to be dealt with. And you and I need to understand that we really are no better than this brood of vipers that stood before John that day. We need to carefully examine ourselves and to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal the sins that have embedded themselves within our lives. And then we need to turn from those sins and instead do our own works of righteousness that are worthy of repentance. One last thought. One last thought before we close. Recall in a recent study of the book of James that over and over again, God made it clear to us that simply believing in Jesus is not enough. There God told us that belief that manifested itself in saving faith would be belief that actually brought about works of righteousness. Else it really was not real. He said, faith without those works is dead. That's also God's message to us here in these words about repentance. If we have truly repented of our sins, then our repentance will evidence itself by changes in our behaviors. As John the Baptist tells us here, by doing works of righteousness that are worthy of repentance. Have our behaviors and conduct, has it changed since we came to know Christ? I know that it has, but how much? That's the point he's making to us here. So then, as you and I go back into our homes and into our workplaces this next week, I would ask that you covenant with me that you will pray as the psalmist prayed in Psalm 139, where he said, Search me, O God, and know my heart, Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And then folks begin earnestly asking the Lord, what should I do? Just as these people ask, John, what should I do now, Lord, to show forth fruits that are worthy of my repentance? Let's pray.